0: Well, good morning, Todd. Morning, John.
1: Looks like it's going to be you and I again this week. So what we have is an airplane that, that, uh, private pilot that took off, uh, at O' doc 30, actually three 50 in the morning. So as I, as I say, at the end, the pre-planning part, this individual in part of his pre-planning was boxing himself in, but he needed to fly this airplane, uh, a few hundred miles in Australia and he was going to then commercial back. It was the day before Christmas and he wanted to be home for Christmas. So he's got himself boxed in, committed to move this airplane, committed to be back home. So there's a first, first thing that should get your antenna very sensitive. You know, what am I doing to myself? Nobody else is doing this to him. He's doing this to himself, right? He, he allowed plenty of time. So he, apparently he got to sleep early. He got to the airport very early. He was checking the weather at 3.50 in the morning, or actually before 3.50, he took off at 3.50. And he determined by his visual cues at, at wherever the airplane was that the weather was better than what the weather reports said were going to be. And then gets back to my second point that I make over and over again, which is you need to consider the weather where you are, where you're going and in between. And he determined based upon the visual cues that he had at the airport he was departing on that the weather was better than predicted and that he was gonna attempt to fly the airplane.
0: And I think it's uh, important to point out here that this event happened in 1994, which was well before the current era where Anyone with their phones or with their iPads or can tie into either commercial services or something like ForeFlight to get very detailed weather about those things you just mentioned: where you are, where you're going, everywhere in between. Any kind of weather notifications that have come out, any kind of warnings that you should be aware of, be it convective activity or what have you. But in 1994, uh, both in Australia where this occurred and the United States, you were pretty much wedded to the formal weather services, especially 3.50 in the morning, where you're probably not going to have radio or television having much in the way of up-to-date, up-to-the-minute weather reports. You would have to rely on the equivalent of the National Weather Service here in the United States.
1: Yes, yes. In, in, in remote Australia, that's, that's uh, probably even worse than it, than it is here in the United States. Well, maybe it's the equivalent of someplace in Oklahoma or kansas you know where there's vast prairies
0: and very few people and and no reporting systems whatsoever and by the way this was a night vfr flight that was going to take several hours and the person was uh again going to be looking at ground references as well as the instruments inside the aircraft in a situation where in his local area when he was taking off the weather was looking better than forecast but again this is a Message to pilots, young and old, those who are thinking of flying and those who have been flying for a long time. Uh, Just because you think from the ground before taking off that the weather is a certain way, doesn't mean it's going to be that way even 15 minutes later if you're in the air. And things can change rapidly and in unexpected ways. And you have to be prepared for that. In this case, quite simply, this was a VFR flight, but you have to prepare yourself, even if you're on a VFR day flight, what do I do if the weather either starts to turn IFR or does turn IFR on me? Do I have the presence of mind to avoid this if I see it coming? Or the presence of mind to plan my way out of this should it happen? So you raise a good point. If
1: you see it coming at 430 in the morning, it's still dark. What are you going to see coming? You know, if it's, if it's weather in the area, you're not going to have a full moon or any moon help guide you, you're, you're, you've got yourself, again, loading yourself up with risk. You know, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And then to complicate things, this poor fellow ended up having additional problems. So he started to have instrument issues. And uh, why don't you go over those, Todd?
0: Well, there are two uh, issues that he had once the weather started closing in on him. His directional gyro was malfunctioning and his ADF was also malfunctioning. Now, this was a Cessna 150 and although they don't detail in either the official article from the ATSB from Australia or another article from I believe the publication was Age Pacific Safety which talked about this event, didn't detail what other equipment was on the aircraft, but one can assume that the Cessna had the basic six pack of you know, altimeter, airspeed indicator, etc. and that if any one of those fail This is a person who was, I believe, a commercial pilot with about 285 hours or so. This is a person with some experience flying. This is a person who is not, you know, a brand new uh, private pilot certificate or the equivalent in Australia. Uh, This person should have had at least some experience with what do you do when you have a partial panel failure? If any one of your instruments is malfunctioning or suspected that it's malfunctioning, which instruments will you pay attention to? Now, uh, getting ahead of the story a bit, at one point, he was attempting to do a time turn to get out of the weather that he was in, and he ended up impacting trees. And fortunately, he uh, survived the event, was able to walk and get help, and and ultimately to give further information about what led up to this event. But this is, uh, again, getting back to what we were saying before. If you're taking off in marginal conditions... Are you ready to deal with the weather if it gets less marginal? And are you ready to deal with, if you're on a VFR flight, going into IFR mode? Even if you're not an IFR, uh, an instrument-rated pilot, you should have some capability of dealing with a situation if the weather goes bad on you.
1: You know, and and no reference is made to uh, alternate airports. You know, we talk about that all the time. What do you... In your pre-planning, you should know where there is at alternate airports so that you could uh, divert to them if you need to. And there's no reference anywhere to it. I mean, this flight was barely an hour long, so he hadn't gone very far when when his problems started to mount considerably. So it um, it just shows, even though he's a commercial rated pilot, he's got 200. 90 hours or whatever, 90, no, 285, you were right, 285 hours uh, in time. Um, he wasn't the smartest guy. Wasn't, what do they how they call this, the sharpest tool in the shed? <laughs> because he wasn't using all his facilities to make a safe
0: flight. And uh, here's another obvious point. When you're flying in daytime, um, if you have an issue and you have to make an emergency, land, emergency landing somewhere, you can see the ground. You can see if there's an open field, you can see if there's a straight road. You can see if there's an alternate airport somewhere out there. If you're flying at night, let's say there is an airport, but it happens to be un- unlighted. It happens to be, you know basically a an asphalt strip. In the daytime, you can see it. at night, you may not be able to see anything. So you're limited in t- as to what sort of place you can land. Now, in a situation like this, the basic rule of thumb I follow is, If you can't see what's out there, or if you're going over uneven territory, you land in a controlled manner. Now, this person was under controlled flight, was not in a stall or a spin. When he hit trees unexpectedly, he was flying slow enough where he survived. So, you know, hats off to him for at least keeping control of the aircraft under trying circumstances. But uh, no hats off to him for getting himself into those trying circumstances in the first place. You know,
1: so the way the report's written, the way his statement is written, uh, he never saw the trees coming. So that gives you an indication of, of how dark the night probably was. Five o'clock in the morning, there may be some, some a little bit of light coming up over the horizon, but uh, obviously it, the gray sky wasn't gray enough to help him see the ground. It just just defies common sense and aviation logic that this guy would have taken this airplane gone in this direction, with all that's missing. And then it also mentions in his report, his narrative, uh, that when he first had the uh, failure started to occur for his instruments, that he was trying to troubleshoot them en route to get them back on which is probably the worst thing you should do, is you should be looking for a place to put the airplane down. So if you knew if there's an airport close by, if you had done your pre-planning and knew where the airports were in the area, he should have been heading for them instead of playing around trying to fix the the problem in flight. And, And it's kind of obvious why he wouldn't do that is because he's got himself boxed in on the pressure side. He's got to get up there to catch his commercial flight. He's already booked it so he can get back home for the holidays. So he's got himself in a situation where I got to get there. I'm going to get in there no matter what. I'm going. and Oh, oh, so I have an instrument problem. All right, I'll deal with that. Let's keep going. Oh, wait a minute. Now I got two instrument problems. Uh, Now is he thinking all his focus is on his instruments, and he's going to turn back because the weather's looking bad. What a surprise the weather's closing in on. I mean, it just goes on and on with the, this type of flight. And that, that, that's exactly why we picked it, because it's probably the, one of the poster childs for things that, as a pilot you should not do. You know, you shouldn't take the risk starting from just the very beginning of flying. Now, this was a ferry 150 flight. It wasn't his airplane. Right. So why was it being ferried up there? Is, is that where its home base is? Was it already down for a mechanical and the, and the owner was gone someplace? There's a lot of unanswered questions here as to why this airplane was leaving a major piece of Australia just outside of a major city and going up to a place in the Northwest Territories, which is pretty remote. So this kind of raises another question. On what was the purpose of this flight? What kind of condition that the airplane was in? That it's a ferry flight, not flying under, maybe not flying under typical ninety-one operation.
0: So we have all sorts of risk factors piling up here: uh, flight at night, deteriorating weather, social pressure to get to his flight so he can get to his family and and be there for the holidays, as well as the pressure of trying to make decisions in the air as a single pilot at night under de facto instrument conditions, So single pilot IFR, as we've mentioned before, it's one of the most highest workload sort of things a pilot can do. And he was in the middle of all this. And on top of that, trying to diagnose problems on the aircraft. So uh, he survived, and thank goodness for that, because uh, although the Australian authorities had a fairly concise report, uh, fortunately, because the pilot survived, There was another article that had much more background detail as to what was going on. The learning uh, opportunity here is much greater because the pilot survived. Had we only had the report from the ETSB, we would have not been able to talk about this in any great length at all because we would not have known the specific details as to what was happening in the cockpit, what decisions he was making once those problems manifested themselves. And what were the the circumstances of of him hitting the trees? It's just a a tragedy
1: that that we had this accident, even though it is fortunate he didn't die. But I think we've uh, hit all the the bullet points on uh, the things that uh, this particular individual did wrong, even though he had enough time in the cockpit and training that he should have recognized all of that himself. He just put himself in a very, very bad position. So having said all that, everybody, Todd, I'll let you
0: close. With the next little last word, my pleasure. And this is uh, something, again, this is a story from almost, not a story, this is a factual event from almost 30 years ago, and yet the lessons are just as valid then as they are right now. That is, Weather is something that you can't play with. Weather is something you can't negotiate with. The weather will do what the weather will do. You use whatever information you have to make decisions. And on the subject of decisions, every flight has a set of circumstances. It's up to you as the pilot to see or determine that those circumstances make this flight worth the effort and worth the risk. After the fact, clearly this flight was not worth the risk. Let's hope that what we say here today will make you think twice when you come across a situation like this in your own flying career. Yes.
1: And for the last word, as usual, I will give my precautions. And the first one is pre-planning. So before you leave your house or your hotel room, do your pre-planning for your flight. And when you get to the airport, do it again. It is obvious from the report and from the pilot's statement, he did that. He did pre-plan from home before he left. And he was concerned that the weather was going bad. But he decided to go to the airport anyway and make a decision from the airport. Not uncommon to do, but you've got to make a good decision when you get to the airport. And it's obvious he made a decision based on insignificant information which was maybe the best that was available at the time, but clearly it wasn't adequate. And he made the decision with the, with the caveat or a pressure point on, on himself, implied, put on him by him, uh, get in there, get this done, and get back home for the holidays. So that piece of pressure on him, that self-imposed pressure, really uh, impacted his decision-making. And away we go. You know, he took off at night. He's going to be flying at night. He crashed at night before the sun came up in, in the weather. So it's definitely going to be very dark. And he had some operational problems, mechanical problems in route. And trying to troubleshoot and repair airplanes in flight in itself is a no-no. When you start to have those kinds of problems, it's best to put it on the ground and do the troubleshooting from on the ground. And there's no indication that he had any clear uh, process where he knew where the airplanes were each step of the way on his, on his route. You know, is he fumbling with the charts as he's going on, uh, as he's flying over, as he has these instrument problems in his stock? Is he fumbling with the charts trying to find a suitable airport to land it at? Uh, those questions are unanswered, but they sure sure uh, raise their head and concerns about how he got himself into this trouble. So pre-planning part, pre-flight, you have to assume he did a good pre-flight. And when you get in the air, you got to put that head on a swivel because we'd still, this isn't, you know, in his case out here in the outback, there probably wasn't much traffic. But here in the States, there's a lot of traffic around airports. So you need to keep that head on a swivel and make sure you know what's going on around you. And with that, friends, I say, please, fly safely.
2: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.
0: British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now.